Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. The music of Australian composer Jack Frere has been performed around the world, including by ensembles such as the Arapahoe Philharmonic, the Nashville Symphony, and the Albany Symphony. Although still a young composer at the age of 26, Jack has received numerous awards, including a Charles Ives Scholarship from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, a Morton Gould Composer's Award from ASCAP, the Suzanne and Lee Edelson Composer's Award, the Brian Israel Prize from the Society for New Music, and was winner of both the Juilliard Orchestra and Gina Rapp's Chamber Music competitions. He was a Tanglewood Fellow for 2019, a composer for New York City's Ballet, and is currently composer-in-residence with the Arapahoe Philharmonic. Jack studied with John Corigliano and Robert Beezer at Juilliard and is currently a graduate student at the Yale School of Music. Jack, it's so exciting to have you on the podcast today. So looking forward to speaking with you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me on. It's so great to see you again. So your music is some of the most exciting music, especially from a contemporary composer that I can remember playing. You submitted On Again, Off Again for the Arapo Philharmonic Composer-in-Residence competition. You're currently Composer-in-Residence there. Can you just talk about the secret sauce or the spice that you bring as a, as a young, up-and-coming, 26-year-old <laughs> composer uh, to all your music, not just orchestral, but also chamber. Ah, uh, the secret spice. Oh, Lord. It's very weird to talk about the secret spice in your own music. I'm not sure what it is because I'm just trying to write what I think is interesting and <laughs> hoping that other people maybe can connect to it or find it entertaining or, you know, moving in some way also. I guess with that piece, On Again, Off Again, which is probably a good representation of a lot of the music that I write in that it's pretty theatrical and pretty driving and pretty full on at times and loud and dramatic. I've been very fortunate so far to have lived 
you know, I grew up in Sydney, Australia. I moved to New York for my undergrad and I was kind of lucky enough to be around a lot of really wonderful teachers and soak in a lot of inspiration from a lot of different musical perspectives and communities. When I was in Australia, I grew up as like a rock guitarist playing in bands and stuff. I thought I was going to do that. I moved to New York and all of a sudden was around all of these like uh, orchestral composers and symphonists at Juilliard. So I kind of took from their DNA as well and tried to figure out how to incorporate um, their kind of musical philosophies. And um, now being at Yale, there's kind of a whole new set of musical ideas that I'm kind of trying to soak in as well. You know, you have a few of the kind of post-minimalists working here at Yale and um, a lot of different styles of music that I'm just trying to digest and then figure out how to put into my own music. I don't know how to, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it's, it's so weird talking about your own music in that kind of way. I don't know. As you've encountered different teachers or influences, are there any in particular that you can think of who you've had trouble assimilating their style or, you know, you know that you have to learn that skill or that, you know, how to write a certain form or something and has, has kind of thrown you for a loop. It's weird because the answer is kind of all of them because you are not the composers that you're working with. And inevitably, if you are a composer of an older generation who has achieved a lot of success writing the music that you write to the point where you're teaching at an institution like a Juilliard or something, you're probably going to have a very strong belief in the music that you're writing, which means if you're teaching students how to write music, you're probably going to teach them how you write your own music, which is not a bad thing. And it's very useful as a composer to understand where other more accomplished composers are coming from and understand the way that they're thinking about their work. There's a line that I think about a lot that Bill Hader, he's a comedian, he was on SNL, has a show called Barry on HBO. I was listening to an interview with him and he talked about kind of learning how to write sketches on SNL and how to kind of use the feedback he got when he showed people those sketches. And he said that other people could always tell him what wasn't working in his sketches. You know, if some if something was lasting too long, if a joke wasn't hitting, you know, if, if something didn't ring true or seem realistic or, you know, it's, it's not hard as an audience member or as a teacher to kind of point that out and let someone know what's not feeling right about their work. But then he said, but they, they can't tell you how to fix it. They can't write it for you. They can give suggestions, say if he's writing his sketch, they can give suggestions of jokes that might work better, but it's not their sketch. It's not their voice. They're not the person writing it. And in the same way, if I'm working with a, a teacher, I can get a really good sense of what's not working in a piece. And I can kind of take in their ideas of how they would come up with solutions to figure out ways to make those pieces work. But I have to remember that it's not their piece and that, you know, if I do use their solutions more often than not, they're, they're probably not actually the right solution. And I'll say one exception because working with John Corleano, he has the most incredible instinct of any composer or musician I've ever been around in my entire life. And there were times where he could tell you how to write your piece and he would somehow know what you should do in your own voice. So I'd say he's probably the exception to that role. That's cool that you talk about that in terms of composition teachers, because I feel in conducting, as far as conducting is concerned, most teachers, by and large, are interested in teaching what, like you said, like how they became successful or effective. And so it is 
challenging to find someone or, you know, that focuses on, okay, what is unique in this person that I can bring out? And that's kind of cool that, you know, just thinking about John Carliano's music, just the diverse palette and just the incredibly unique spirited voice that he creates that kind of makes sense in a, in a way. interesting that you brought up comedy because I feel your music more than most other composers, especially those writing today, has this comedic voice. Like for example, when we performed On Again, Off Again, we did one at a, it was a summer concert outdoors for like families and people just like drinking beer and people were like audibly laughing at at just some of the cool effects. (laughs) And I think of, you know, your more recent piece with the Albany Symphony, uh, The Present Hour where it's two amplified sopranos and they're kind of responding to the pandemic and the social distancing and you're creating distance in your music. And there's this there's this uh, moment early on in the piece where you think the piece is possibly over because there's this baked in applause. You instruct the conductor and the performers to applaud in the music. It almost reminds me of Haydn, you know, where he writes all these little jokes in his symphonies he expects that the audience would have found it freaking hilarious. Can you talk about how you developed that aspect and maybe not just comedic, but also the theatrical aspects of your music? It's kind of all I know. I feel like I don't know how to write something serious without first presenting like a punchline that's going to open the audience up to then the potentially more serious music. You know what I mean? It's just, I mean, for me, a kind of musical joke is just a way to let an audience kind of drop its cynicism so that when it does get to the serious part, they actually have opened up and are able to receive it and potentially connect with it. And maybe that's just for me when I listen to music, maybe have my own struggles as a listener at times. Thank you. 
Dominic has been in isolation. Except for day one, because he didn't do a poem on day one. Day two of self-isolation. Morale is low. Got in an argument with the dog. And dropped a block of chocolate in the toilet. Day three of self-isolation. The dog's constipated. And I've run out of weed. Day four of self-isolation. Christina took the dog. Turns out you can eat two weeks of food in three days. Day five. This time last week, I was getting ready for a trip to Australia. Today, I tried to pick up the mail with my elbows. Day six. Yesterday, I looked at photos of my dog for four hours. Day seven. I miss my dog. Day nine. I knew there was a reason I bought all these tracksuit pants. Tracksuit pants. All these tracksuit pants. Tracksuit pants. All these tracksuit pants. I knew there was a reason. Day ten. I didn't foresee.
In terms of uh, the present hour, there's that applause break. The, the reason that was there was because the, the piece was performed without an audience. There was a very small audience that was kind of let in at the last second, but it was just written for a stream, you know? Yeah, and, and you almost think when you hear that applause, you think, oh, because it's during COVID, there's only 30 people socially distanced in the audience, so that's what it would sound like. <laughs> right, there's all these implications because of COVID now from that applause that, you know, that it's got to be the instrumentalists doing it. And watching the stream, you do watch them all put their instruments down and applause and kind of stop one by one. Even the conductor, David Allen Miller, he's, you know, he's at the front applauding. And you very specifically tell people tell the conductor to applaud, and you very specifically in the score tell people when to stop each player, tell them when to stop applauding. So you're you're really controlling every aspect of that, which I think is really cool. Because a lot of times as a conductor, I'm like, okay, what does the composer want here? It's so great when he or she just tells us. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad that whole system worked out. I kind of for anyone listening, I, I had this whole system of staggering out the clapping so that you never quite hear it end. It just kind of is this very smooth decrescendo that just kind of fades away as the next music starts. The next music that comes is, is very kind of sincere and more serious and slow. And so I, I worked on that piece, The Present Hour, with um, with Ayla Sullivan. Ayla and I kind of found all these different texts and Ayla wrote a few of the texts as well. And I'm trying to remember who came up with the clapping part. It might have been Ayla, but there was also the um, the implication of what clapping meant at the beginning of COVID. Also, you know, Ayla was in New York City for those first three months and was there at you know 7 p.m. every evening when people would clap out of their windows for all of the essential workers and stuff. So letting that applause kind of hang out, which at the beginning seems very comedic because it's come right after the singers are just like screaming and there's this big kind of funny climactic ending of sorts um so having the clapping which at beginning seems like a very you know just this dramatic comedic thing as the more you think about it and the more you think about how it connects to covid there are potentially more serious implications to the gesture of having a bunch of people clapping and also the fact that there's no audience there clapping as well you know what i mean it's, it's like something that seems like a punchline but then has implications outside of the joke can you talk a little bit more about the present hour, how it came about, the collaboration, and maybe what it was like? I'm not sure if you were in person for a lot of that process uh, and what it was like to kind of put together a commission during COVID. Doing the piece was really fun, actually. It came after this um, this wind ensemble piece that I'd spent maybe like five months working on that just kind of totally consumed everything and was not a particularly enjoyable experience. Also written during winter, uh, this last winter. So, you know, stuck inside in Connecticut when COVID was not, you know, when cases were kind of at its, their peak and not a great time, but finished that wind ensemble piece and then had this Albany piece to write without much time to write it. I had a bit over a month and a half, I think, to write this, you know, 10 to 15 minutes infinita piece and knew that there were a couple of vocalists in the ensemble, had to find texts. And if I have to use text in the piece, I just call Ayla immediately <laughs> because I, I feel like I'm, I'm good at finding texts and knowing which texts will um, have the potential to be sung and set to music. But I, I, I'm not a writer. I, I can't generate text. And when it comes to kind of putting together a narrative or kind of an arc of any way using text, that's not that's not my strong point. But Ayla, that's 
what they do. That's that's Ayla's whole thing. So called Ayla, and we probably had like four two-hour-long Zoom calls where we just spent time looking for texts, going online, thinking about what this piece could potentially be. You know, the, the one instruction I got for the commission, and this wasn't even a serious instruction, but I was talking to the conductor on the phone, and he was chatting about how it might might be nice to do a piece about reconnection, you know, post-COVID, people coming back outside and connecting with each other again, and, you know, that goes also to the musicians who are finally able to play again, together again in an orchestra. And I was thinking about connection, but then also thinking about disconnection and thinking maybe we could make this a very disconnected piece where there's a lot of very different texts and musical styles that are kind of held together more by a central theme as opposed to musical material. You know, if we had a bunch of texts that were loosely or directly related to COVID in some way, it could justify writing a piece that visited all different genres from rock to classical to pop to jazz stuff in there as well. And the ensemble itself kind of fit that idea as well, because it's a symphonietta ensemble, but with a drummer and a rock bass player and a keyboard player who had a bunch of different keyboard patches that he could potentially play anything from piano sounds to harpsichords to even like electric guitar sounds at one point. So that we ended up settling on a few texts by a few different poets. Ayla wrote a couple of sections, including one about me and Ayla re realized very quickly that we shared a common problem, which was that because we've been at home for so long in such close proximity to our bathrooms, we've kind of lost the ability to hold our pee. Because, you know, uh, anytime you want to go now, you've got the bathroom right there. Um, so going out in public now, we've realized that our bladders have, have shrunk substantially. One of the lesser discussed effects of the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> I'm glad you're bringing this to light. <laughs> it's going to be on the news at some point. I don't know how to hold my pee anymore. I don't know how to hold my pee. I don't know how to hold my pee anymore. I don't know how to
And then there's like these poems by this poet from New Zealand named Dominic Hui. I found his poems on his Instagram. He, at the beginning of lockdown in New Zealand, he wrote a poem every single day, isolation poems. And I set all of those. And then there's this beautiful little children's poem at the end by Amy Ludwig van der Water called First Practice, which is about, you know, being a kid, coming back to school after summer and going to your first sports practice and figuring out who you're going to be as you kind of re-enter the group as you, you know, in a way that rung true to figuring out who we're going to be post-pandemic and re-entering society. And yeah, I thought it was just a nice way to end the piece. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to write. That was the best pandemic composing experience I've had so far, also because I knew it was going to be played. That's kind of what made it struggle before that piece was that, you know, writing a wind ensemble piece, for example, the one that I did before, there was kind of no guarantee that it was going to be played anytime soon, just because of the complications of playing wind instruments and having spit flying everywhere in a pandemic is not always super safe. And actually the premiere was supposed to be in Australia three days ago and it just, it got canceled because they've been in lockdown now for a month. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. Was that Zoom? That's Zoom. Yeah. Also kind of a COVID. No relation to the Zoom we're all familiar with. Yes and no. The idea is that hopefully it'll be played someday when people don't associate the word Zoom with video conferencing. Knowing your music, Zoom sounds like a piece that you would just write. Exactly. It's 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 a roller coaster of a piece. It's like the most intense theatrical music I've ever written. And that's kind of the joke of the thing as well, is that Zoom is, you know, the way that we know Zoom now to be video conferencing, it's the most static thing in the world. It's just heads and boxes. <laughs> Nothing's moving. It's always uh, monotonous and dull. And your music is always just constantly pulling the rug out from under us. It's all pretty regular. I mean, too, there's there's a lot of rhythmic regularity. Um, it's not like, you know, I know that you did the the iPhone ring, like where is the rhythm kind of thing? Like like some <laughs> some music really distorts your sense of what time is. Your music always gives us a, 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 I mean, not always, but a lot of times gives us a strong purpose of where the beat is. But at the same time, it constantly jars our sense of um, solidity, um, which I think is a great thing, which I think in going back a little bit to your comedic timing in the music, I wonder, you know, as in the end of the present hour, did the pandemic or being in isolation, uh, being able to look inward, did that change any of your compositional intents and purpose? Because uh, I think that for your music, obviously there's this comedic side, but there's this incredibly introspective side and comforting in many ways side that always comes through. Can you talk about, did, the, did that balance shift for you at all? Yeah, I think it did thanks by the way that's that's it's it's nice said yeah you said some nice things yeah i, I think if anything it, i the music kind of became even more structured just because this last year has been so chaotic and unpredictable i think i found comfort at least for a while in writing music that was even where where i could feel and, and and this is kind of for better and for worse, to, to feel more in control of the musical material than I had before, just to feel like I kind of was in control of something, which is maybe not the, the healthiest impulse in the world. And we'll see how it actually results musically once the piece is performed in person. 
talking about Zoom specifically, it's like this 10 minute piece that's as, as the, the processes that the thematic material is going to go through are quite strict and the kind of narrative arc of the thing is, is very kind of uh, logical, I guess is the right word. And it was kind of comforting during that time to work on music with a very clear beginning, middle and end at a time where things in the real world were more ambiguous. But that's being said, I guess the, the present hour, which I wrote afterwards, is it has no beginning, middle and end really. It's just kind of all over the place. But the comedic stuff is always there. I mean, writing comedic music for me is like, it's fun. It's rewarding when you figure out exactly the right way to present some kind of piece of comedic musical material or some kind of punchline. And yeah, just the whole notion of expectation and how to deceive people's expectations is is just always fun as a composer and as a listener, I think. So that's always something I strive for. talk a little bit about your involvement as a filmmaker as well you've created some you know you've kind of co-written some and you've obviously composed music to them can you talk about uh, the importance of that in your in your life and your composition yeah it's been a while I, I kind of put that to the side these last couple of years I definitely took it very seriously during my undergrad you know when I was at Juilliard and I was still trying to figure out what my musical work was going to be and figuring out how to be useful as a composer. I realized very quickly that I could be very useful in that community as a filmmaker. Because, you know, at Juilliard, there's, there's a million composers, it's a million musicians. You're not necessarily the most useful person in the world if you know how to write a piece of music. But if you know how to hold a camera in that building, everyone immediately wants to work with you. <laughs> because, you know, the dancers, the only way that they can promote the, their work or capture it outside of a performance space is, is to have someone film it. Same with the actors and with the musicians now as well, because gone are the days of people consuming classical music CDs and stuff. You know, the, the best way to present your music now is, is on YouTube and letting people actually see the performance on video. So I did a lot of more kind of documenting performances and stuff. I, I filmed a lot of concerts for people, filmed a lot of dance pieces. And well, that was useful, actually, making all that. I made a lot of dance films and learned how dancers and choreographers 
think and work, which in turn helped me figure out how to write music for dance, which is something I've been doing quite a lot of the last couple of years as well. And it looks like these next couple of years, there'll be quite a few more dance things too. Yeah, and I, I did a lot of work with actors and figured out how they could potentially interact with the music I was writing as well. I worked on this film, my third year at Juilliard, with this actor named Nicholas Badani. I had written this piece of music, this uh, Piero ensemble piece, this 10-minute thing. Is that Downloads? Downloads, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Oh, yeah, thanks. It feels like so long ago now, but me and Nick figured out how to structure a film around the piece of music so kind of figuring out how to make this kind of dialogue free silent film that was just accompanied by this music as a soundtrack so you wrote the piece first yeah 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 exactly okay and that's the opposite of how it would always work which is cool <laughs> right exactly yeah where the filmmaker would have the film cut and then give it to a composer later on to kind of throw music on the top so it kind of puts the film and the music on equal footing, which was, yeah, I want to figure out how to do that again. But I, yeah, it's been a couple of years since I've kind of done any film stuff just because the music's kind of taken over recently. But yeah, hopefully it's been hard as well because it's it's hard to organize a film shoot during a pandemic when people can't be in a room yeah. together. There haven't been many opportunities to to do it. So And for, for downloads, uh, everybody should check it out. It's on YouTube. It's it's basically some of the frustrations that we don't really think about it anymore <laughs> since the pandemic happening, but it's just somebody who's having trouble downloading and all the kind of starts and stops and frustrations that come from really small things that really <laughs> shouldn't frustrate us in life. And, and, it's, and there's a relationship built into it and it's quite touching. And Nick does a fantastic job at, at pulling that off and a couple other actors in there. Once you finish the music... How involved were you in the actual film and the writing or the filmmaking process? Me and Nick had worked on the script together a bit, but I had kind of storyboarded the whole thing out. And I filmed most of it, but my friend Liana Kleinman, who's a dancer who I did a lot of film work with in New York, who's just the best collaborator and friend. And she was there most of the time as well, also holding a camera. All very DIY. And you can tell if you watch it. It's just, you know, we bought a couple of like construction lights from Home Depot <laughs> to use to kind of light the sets a little bit. And yeah, it was very much just like a fun undergrad project that we just wanted to do for the sake of it. And I, I kind of am hoping someday that the opportunity comes up where I can do it a bit more properly, potentially with a larger ensemble where it could be a live performance of a piece of music with a film running concurrently on some kind of projection uh, set up behind the orchestra. I've seen it done with a lot of very experimental performance practices where it's a lot more abstract and the connection between the video and the musicians is it's much less clear. But I'd love to do something that just feels narrative and fun and funny and uh, entertaining in that kind of format. So hopefully. For that ensemble or in, in general, in any ensemble? Oh, in general, I mean, anything from that to an orchestra, I think, would be would be really fun. Mind the distance. Count the faces. Three is safe. Six gets dicey. Keep the spaces. Mind the distance. Count the faces. Three is safe. 
music gets dicey. Keep the spaces. So you were talking a little bit about the control aspect that you feel like that maybe you lost a little bit, that maybe all of us lost a little bit. I feel like as a creator, as an artist, you're always kind of in some ways figuring out ways to get more control over the product, you know, but at the same time, the the older you get and the more experience you get, the more you realize you don't have any control over it. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, I wonder how that translates to being a composer because as a composer, you're, you know, and we see this historically, the, the later the later you go in time, you know, Bach, but then Haydn and even Mozart, fairly minimal markings and instructions. But as you get into the 20th century with Bruckner and then Mahler, of course, who was conducting all his own music and learning on the job what worked and what didn't, like the control aspect is all over the place. He wants to tell every single player and the conductor how to do their job 100% of the time. Can you talk about where you are on that um, spectrum? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. I think about this a lot. And I'd love to hear your take on this as well from a conductor's perspective, just because, you know, for composing and for conducting the idea of, of control and figuring out how best to approach it is is so vital for so many reasons. But yeah, it, it's weird because where classical music got to in the 20th century is uh, it got pretty totalitarian at a certain point, you know, looking at like a Boulez score or mid 20th century composers that really took it really far and you know you look at the performers playing those pieces and you can't imagine that they're really getting anything out of the experience other than just being scared for their lives so it's a tricky thing because my music is, is is often very specific you know it's, it's pretty rhythmic and driving and the gestures succeed if they are played with a lot of conviction and accuracy and so that energy kind of needs to needs to be there but you can't control that. You can't make people care about anything, really. You just have to maybe encourage them or tell them how you hope they might approach playing your piece. I use a lot of adjectives in my scores, especially as of as of late. So instead of just giving 
say a very specific musical instruction where it's like articulations and some intense dynamic marking fortissimo with an accent and a tenuto mark and the whole thing that's control that's telling the player that you want them to like you know play this so loud that it like hurts that it's you know that's not that's not really encouraging that feels controlling i think as a player so so if you if you tell them more about the effect that you're going for as opposed to telling them how to do it then there's maybe more fruitful results in this wind ensemble piece that i i wrote there's just a lot of um it's very it's very loud because part of the piece was also wanting to write something where everyone's playing together all the time because that's what's been lacking during the pandemic is just hear people play together and giving musicians that experience of playing together so next to a lot of tempo markings i have just like the word huge written in big capital letters in bold where players can like laugh about it together because they all have just this word huge written on their score. That's really what forte means. Like it means huge. It doesn't mean loud necessarily. Yeah. 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 Like don't just like, I don't know. Don't just like blow your instrument hard. Just like, you know, (laughs) I want to give you the opportunity to like get into it and start banging your head a bit and like, you know, really feel the gestures as opposed to me trying to control how you actually do them. But of course that's a very, it's a very fine line. And that's, I feel like half of the job is composing is where it's figuring out how to let players feel like they have some level of autonomy, even though they're working in a medium where they're being told what to do for most of their time. It's it's a very weird thing to wrap your head around, but I'm really curious to hear kind of where you're at with that kind of question. One of the things that strikes me is kind of the deification of composers after Beethoven. It just started like we started romanticizing artists and writers and all these creators and kind of putting them on a pedestal. And I feel like I spend my whole life trying to like humanize all those people and just say, okay, they're not like gods. Yeah, of course, there's some kind of genius involved in there. But that's why one of the reasons I like interacting and working with, you know, living composers is because it, it just personalizes what we do. Um, and we're, when we're just, we're working against these currents and these stereotypes of, you know, the museum and the what's relevant of Bizet's Carmen. Like how, how is that, how can you make that story relevant aside from having maybe Carmen killed Don Jose at the end or something like that to <laughs> revert the roles. But yeah, there's, I mean, I guess, I guess opera is one thing, but there's, I think there's a timeless quality to all of the music that we still play, whether it be from the 1500s or the 1700s or the 2000s, that make it so important, I feel like, for us to share that message. So yeah, for me, it's it's really just about how can we, and that's what, one thing I love about your music is how can we how can we make people feel something that they feel from, you know, turning on their favorite Netflix show or going out to dinner with friends or something like that? I think that's what you do so well. And I think that, that that's the kind of, of vibes that, you know, it's almost like histrionics without, you know, without actually having to tell a story. You're telling the story through music, but creating an incredibly compelling narrative whenever you do it. Yeah. I think that that's interesting too, because, you know, you mentioned trying to create something that's as compelling as like a Netflix show. And you, you think about what classical music can do to top 
like Breaking Bad or something. <laughs> Which in terms of like the genius department, there's nothing we're going to do that's like as compelling as like their narrative and the characters on like a really well produced Netflix show. Yeah. But you think about what we do have and we have the person to person interaction. We have the concert hall. We have the, the kind of personal connection. And there's so much potential for like real human relationships and connections and that kind of setting that you can't get obviously watching Walter White on a TV screen. It's uh, so we have that going for us. So it's just, I don't know. You want to, you want to create that opera? You want to create <laughs> breaking bad? The <laughs> opera? I, and I'd do that in a second. Oh my God. Let's go to Albuquerque for six months. <laughs> <laughs> I'll meet you there. <laughs> oh my Lord. Someday, someday. They'd never go for it. <laughs> talked about i didn't i guess maybe you told me that but i i didn't it, it surprised me when i mean it didn't surprise me from your music but you mentioned you're a rock guitarist and i know you were born in new york city and you were in you went to sydney from the age of three to 20 can you maybe talk about how that influenced your composition but maybe some other really formative elements or kind of first memories uh interacting with music 
it's all a pretty conventional thing nowadays, actually, the way that I kind of went about doing it. I know a lot of composers now that grew up playing guitar and playing in non-classical musical settings that somehow found contemporary classical music. But I, I started off as a pianist. You know, I started when I was five, just the normal thing. Mom puts you in front of a piano when you're a kid and got like very good for an eight-year-old and then stopped getting better from that point <laughs> onwards, basically. You couldn't quite get the curveball to break. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but was was really interested in music theory when I was a kid. I remember I had, a, I, had a, oh, wow. I think a good ear for like a kid, but didn't really know what to do with it. So I was very interested in classical music from just like purely a music theory perspective, not at all like a repertoire perspective. If you asked me what I thought about like Beethoven when I was an eight-year-old, it would have just been like, this is dumb. I don't know what, <laughs> I had no connection to it whatsoever. That's very unique. I wonder, are, are there like episodes you remember that told you you had a very good ear? Yes. My mom put all of our home videos from when I was a kid onto DVDs so we could watch them. And I remember when I was a bit older, a few years ago, we were watching them as a family. And there's a video of me on the piano as like a, as like a six-year-old. And I'd like figured out circle of fits and how key signatures all relate by like perfect fits and stuff. Wow. Is that on YouTube somewhere? Can you share that? <laughs> I'll, I'll find it. I'll find it somewhere. This is, I don't know, this, this feels very like, self-aggrandizing but i'm also just talking about myself as a six-year-old so it's not like a i don't know it's but yeah i mean I, I was just it's it's what i just seemed interested in as a kid was just figuring out how the machine all kind of fit together but didn't connect to the music at all but then kind of from middle school onwards found the guitar and just became totally obsessed with playing guitar because it was i think in hindsight it was an instrument i could just play entirely by ear i actually don't know what the notes on the guitar are if you tell me what like a note on a string on a fret is high up on the fingerboard i can't tell you what it is but i could just play it by ear because i knew every chord shape built on every bass note and knew every scale shape uh kind of more from like a jazz perspective but it let me play and improvise in a way that felt more like composing rather than just like playing notated music directly so I think I learned a lot about kind of musical gesture and kind of emotive music just from obsessively playing guitar for like four years growing up and being around that kind of music and playing in bands. And But then in the last couple of years of high school, came back around to classical music and realized that there were ways of clarifying more intense gestural ideas in a way that other people could then take on and play themselves. And that kind of collaborative process was very appealing kind of from the get-go. And I'm still I'm still going, I guess, now. Yeah, So, but it's always felt like those two very distinct worlds where it's like the strict, more strict, classical, organized, right brain stuff. And then the left brain playing guitar without knowing what the notes are, music that's purely emotional and gestural and figuring out ways to kind of bridge those things together, which I think has a lot to do with the comedic stuff as well, because what is a joke other than having the kind of right brain organization of understanding how a joke needs to be structured and how you can build up an expectation and then kind of tear it away. But then also having the kind of just raw emotional response to something like that. It, it's always felt like this very binary thing in that 
in that way. I don't know if any of that made sense, but <laughs> no, that's cool because it explains a lot. I think because I, I'm always curious to see when somebody makes you know discovers like art music or cla- I, I hate to say classical every time I say it. It's like saying Macbeth at a theater or something. But I think that kind of speaks to and encapsulates your uniqueness as a composer is assimilating that side of playing by ear of really intrinsically embodying the different sound worlds, you know, the different scale, scale colors or um, different modes, because I feel like classical music in the end of the day is, is creative. It's not rule oriented. I mean, of course there are rules that we learn in music theory that you probably learned when you were six, <laughs> but it's the, the best classical music breaks all the rules <laughs> in some ways. Right. Right, right. But still kind of starts from that foundation in order to pull away from said rules. And, you know, it's, yeah, no, I totally agree. What instruments are you playing now? Are you actively playing anything? Or when you're composing, how do you incorporate performance into that aspect? So I'm usually at a piano, although more recently I've been trying to distance myself from that. Hmm. You know, no matter what your process is, writing music, whatever process you use is going to influence the music that you write. So there's no, you know, you hear a lot of composers or teachers and stuff say you must never write at the piano because blah, blah, blah. Or teachers are like, you must write at the piano because blah, blah, blah. And I think there's no right or wrong process. It's just, you need to have an understanding that whatever tools you use are going to influence the music that you write. And I've been kind of writing at the piano for a while and it gives me a certain musical result which is often very harmonic often with some sense of pulse and meter and tempo i've written some music at the guitar as well i've written a couple of solo cello pieces at the guitar just because i could tune the guitar strings to the right you tune them to fits and then you can get all the harmonics really easily and you can figure out the actual gesture that the cellist is going to be making when they play the piece rather than just presenting them with dots that you've come up with more abstractly for the present hour, for example, I wrote most of the vocal parts first away from the piano, had melodic ideas. And a lot of that is like a Sprechstimme, which is like, it's not associated with pitch too. Yeah, totally. And that stuff, you know, um, I've tried to do that at the piano where the kind of harmonic direction was influencing the vocal parts, but it just didn't work. But but doing it away from the piano and just having the vocal stuff organized first and then orchestrating around it was just much better process for me. And that's kind of how most of the piece came about as well, being away from all instruments and just kind of using my voice and singing a lot <laughs> to myself in my apartment. That's cool. Sing out loud. Yeah. Oh, totally. It's interesting you talk about the piano because somebody like George Schulte says that towards the end of his life, maybe the last 20 years or something like conductors, we spend all of our time trying to learn how to read complex scores at the piano, get faster. And then Schulte's like, I don't ever sit at the piano. I don't need the piano. I can, you know, I just look at the score. (laughs) So what is yours? I mean, what do you, what's your process in that sense? It's a lot of the same. I mean, in some ways can like, I think I told a composer once, like I'm a closeted composer. Um, (laughs) I just have all the originality sucked out of me because I'm just constantly working with everybody else's music, but it's very much the same. I mean, my instrument was, my original instrument was trombone. So I'm not really playing. I mean, I'm mostly at the piano. I'm singing, I'm feeling, I'm trying to embody like the rhythm of the piece, the spirit of the piece. I'm learning about 
different aspects of the the piece, like Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. So in 1812, this was in the wake of the Immortal Beloved when he essentially, we this woman, we don't know who she was. He decided that he was going to not try to have a family, not try to have a little, a normal life. And he would, he would live for posterity and live for his creative arts. Um, at the same time, it was the end of the Napoleonic Wars and Beethoven had a really complex, you know, he had a love hate relationship with Napoleon. Uh, the Russians had just sort of drove, driven Napoleon out and it was part of a benefit concert, which was celebrating that and, and benefiting wounded soldiers in that battle. So it's interesting to learn this stuff about, you know, what Beethoven was going through in his life. You know, that's the great thing about I can just call you if I have a question about that. I don't like trying, <laughs> but, but, but normally composers are just like, you know, I, I don't know. I just wrote it. <laughs> it's, I don't know where that, kind of, yeah. where that came from. Um, so they're, they're similar aspects. I would be curious if we were to commission a piece from you and said, okay, we want this piece done in two weeks and here's manuscript paper and a pencil and you're, you know, you're on like an, an island somewhere with no piano, no instruments. I, I would be curious what you would come up with. Uh, that would be a struggle <laughs> if it was just instrumental music. Yeah. Like a full, full orchestra, full orchestra. Should we do it? Timer starts now. Two weeks. <laughs> we convene on the... <laughs> Go. <laughs> Same thing if you handed me a score and said you have, to, if it was a really complex score, like say Boulez or something. Or a lot of, like, I've done competitions where they send you scores from European contemporary composers, and it's like, wow, like, I I need a piano for this. Yeah. But if it was like, if you had unearthed a Haydn Symphony 105, <laughs> I would be fine with, I could figure it out with just the score and go in front of the orchestra. So, right. um, yeah. I guess it de just depends on the complexity. For sure. And that, that also goes to the composing as well, because, you know, it's, it's less about having a process that's set in stone and more figuring out what the music needs and what kind of process the music requires. Like I'm, I'm writing an orchestra piece now where there are parts where I need to be at the piano because it's, it's pretty harmonic material that needs to be kind of figured out at an instrument. But then there are parts that are more abstract and floating as well, where being at the piano would be a disservice to the music where it's better to be away. And in the same way that if you're looking at a score, maybe there's certain pieces where it's best if you could, you know, you can probably just sight read them and it'll be fine. <laughs> and then you get the Boulez score and you're like, okay, I should sit down and figure this out at an instrument or yeah. What music, if you listen to music when you're not working, what music do you listen to? I mean, are, are you ever still in like study mode? Oh, I need to like, I need to learn all the Bruckner symphonies because I, I I don't know. <laughs> I can't hum the second movement of the sixth symphony. <laughs> or I mean, what, what 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 do you, do you listen to music or, or do you play other music at the piano still? So it depends. Being someone still, you know, in school, especially when the school year is going, a lot of the time spent listening to music is, is kind of... Um, you know, a, a lot of your homework as a music student is is studying specific scores. And, you know, I, this last semester I took a orchestration class with, with Chris Theofanidis, who's like just amazing. Oh, my God. He's I've been conducting his music for 15 years. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ra Rainbow Body was the first. And yes. um, God, he wrote this piece, Raga, for like six instruments. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I haven't heard that one, no. One of his earliest pieces. Yeah, check it out. It's a great piece. Oh, awesome. Yeah. He he's he's amazing. He was he was my private teacher this last semester as well. He's just the best. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, but you know, doing an orchestration class with him, it meant spending the week kind of going through a set of scores that he'd kind of assign and then coming into class every week and as a group would kind of discuss 
over Zoom uh, the music that would kind of heard and the orchestration that we'd been listening to. And that was everything from Tchaikovsky to Andrew Norman. You know, that we went through a ton of stuff, Addis and Stravinsky. And, but more casually, I've been thinking about this because I, I, I always kind of struggle with the, the question, like, what do you listen to? What are your influences? Because I was, I feel like I came right after, you know, I, I'm a bit too young to remember like record stores and CD stores. My only memory of CD stores were like all of them closing <laughs> along with like Blockbuster and stuff. So my taste in music and what I listened to was never like an active choice. It more just was based on what internet algorithms kind of fed me. <laughs> and it, it's kind of still remained true that like my way of discovering and listening to music is kind of scrolling through youtube videos of musicians and going through everything from like watching videos of like coltrane which then gives a link to chick korea which then links to his orchestrator who orchestrated his piano concerto which then somehow links to philip glass and it's usually just kind of rabbit holes of music yeah so not very organized or studious in any way at all and i'm definitely not really um i feel like the generation just above me was very focused on like the idea of the album but i don't really have any relationship to that you know the idea of sitting down for an hour and listening to a whole work just via recording you know um does any of those um that you mentioned from either the theophanides orchestration or any of those composers you mentioned do any of those like kind of jump out at you within a particular manner yeah i mean um i mean all of them for their particular traits but just the fact that they have such a clear character and that, you know, if you listen to a piece of Chris's, of Chris Theophanidis's, you know immediately that it's him. There's just, his his priorities are so clear, but not in a way where it's repressing other, other ideas. It's just, uh, in, in, in the same way that Stravinsky just sounds like Stravinsky and that Addis just sounds like Addis. It goes back to the thing where like, if you're working with a teacher, they can tell you what's not working about your music, but they can't tell you how to write it. If you're listening to other people's music, you can see what solutions they came up with, but you can't necessarily just, well, I guess that's not true. I guess you can kind of pick and choose and that's how you figure out your own musical values as a composer is choosing what you're going to steal and <laughs> what you're not going to steal from other people. Do you consider it stealing? I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's probably different levels. Well, I asked I asked because we had a whole children's concert. It was called Steal This Concert, literally. Uh, and it was a, a lesson in musical borrowing and imitation. And some people got a little got a little taken aback from using the steal because it's it's just borrowing. And then of course did did Picasso or Jobs or Stravinsky say it, good artists borrow, great artists steal. Right. That's been attributed to a few different people, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that, that question has changed so much even since their time. Now that the, the entertainment culture is literally just stripping audio from one place, a video from another place, putting them together and putting that on TikTok. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. not actually creating anything <laughs> original at all. Just letting existing songs just continue to develop and letting their meaning change. Which is also interesting. I don't know if it's stealing, um, but I heard this piece recently. Uh, I think it's called Minus Bolero. I forget. It's it's by this. It's by one of the Darmstadt guys. Really heady, like 
contemporary stuff, but it's literally just bolero, but only the accompaniment. There's no, it's so it's the whole like seven minute, 17 minute thing, but none of the melody at all. It's just the accompaniment. So it sounds like Philip Glass or, or Steve <laughs> Reich of. or something like that. Yeah, it's just boom, 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 boom with the snare drum. Thing. That sounds like the Eroica Symphony, The Last Moon. Boom, beam, boom. <laughs> Um, and that's and that's we go back to our, the idea of musical humor that Beethoven got from Haydn, and I think to some extent Beethoven wasn't as funny as Haydn, so he had trouble really bringing off the jokes. But he was such obviously a, a mammoth artist and figure that no matter what jokes he told, they always you know his his creation and the overriding structure was able to carry any kind of lack and in um comedic timing that that right and he kind of struck a balance as well i feel like if his music was more funny it might kind of detract from it i don't know have, have you heard that thing of um pdq bach commentating the opening movement of the fifth yeah 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 i've never performed it people have asked me about it so many times and, I, and i'm gonna have to perform it because i mean i've seen it performed but I've never performed it. That would be amazing. You got to do it in a way where you, you can conduct while also be sitting in some kind of radio booth with a microphone in front of you with the headphones. Yeah. Maybe you can do a piece for the second half or for part of that, like a companion piece for that. Yeah. Whole commentated concert. Like bring it, maybe some Olympic theme or something. I guess it's a little, you'd have to really get in that two weeks, get on that island. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it could work with like, you know, all those like ESPN soundtracks and stuff. Like before you watch a basketball game, it's all just like orchestral music with a drum kit in the back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That whole genre is just waiting for it. I feel like. Yeah, let's do it. We got we, I'm giving you a lot of homework, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to go. I have nothing else to do. <laughs> I've got one more bone to pick with you, by the way. And it's regarding that um, that video you made <laughs> on the, the, the cell phone. Where where's the rhythm? And to me, I feel like nobody got, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to come in as a conductor and say that I'm right and everybody's wrong, but, but my interpretation of the rhythm is, wait, no, 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 which, no, that's a different one. It's a different ringtone. Yeah. Sing me, sing me the one that you did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I need to, I need to, yeah, I was, <laughs> you the wrong I can't believe I, I sang the wrong rhythm. Um, <laughs> you better leave that in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to cut it out. I'm not, I'm taking this out. Dun, 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 dun. I know that the Nokia one though, the, uh, where's the, I was singing that old one. Well, that's there. Is there a two note pickup or is it? They're all, they're all in four to me. And then they start counting, but it's just—I think it's a big four, actually. Right, but one, two, three, four, one, one, dun, 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 and then the triplets on the beat, dun, 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 dun. Is that where you landed? Oh, you're as a triplet. I mean, the main thing, yeah, it's probably more suitable to conduct in a halftime thing as a big four. But more about otherwise, you're you're working too hard, right? For sure. <laughs> you got to let the orchestra subdivide. But you do it the way that percussionists <laughs> all do it. Every percussionist I've come across does it. The dun 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 dun
That's right. That's what you're doing. My impulse is to do it. Right. Yeah. It's just an eighth note off. Yeah. For some reason, every percussionist does it your way. It's like objectively the funkier way to do it that way. And everyone who's like either not a musician or <laughs> plays like a instrument with a less direct attack time, like a lot of string players and wind players do it my way. Cause I think it's more, I don't know, uh, more regular and less funky. I don't know, but I, I, yeah. I wonder if, if I'm landing with the percussionists, I'm wondering if we're more the left brain and you're more the right brain, you know, as the composer and the people who are not, maybe trained musicians, maybe the the more creative types are, have a more ambiguous sense of what that rhythm, rhythm could be. Cause to me, there's more amb- ambiguity when you do it your way. Interesting. There are a couple of non-musicians I, I, I did it with in the video and I couldn't put this into the video cause it would just get too long, but a couple of them would actually phase back and forth. So they'd actually hear them both ways and they didn't have a strict way of hearing it. Oh, okay. Just because counting in their heads is not something they're used to doing at all. Whereas with musicians, it's just if we hear a piece of music that's metered, our impulse is to kind of figure out in our heads where the downbeat is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But for them, it's like, and at the, at the end of that video, there's this Radiohead song that I kind of go through for a second that does exactly the same thing. And the music intentionally kind of phases the beat back and forth so that you hear the downbeat in different places. That was, that's cool. I love pieces that do that. It's Yeah, it's amazing. And in this one especially, it's, it's done in such an intentional way. Um, I could do like a whole presentation of it, I feel like. But, but watching, watching the non-musicians, non-musicians react to that song, they were so fluid in the way that they approached it and the way that they would kind of move back and forth between different ways of counting and different downbeat placements. Whereas with musicians, they wanted to keep their downbeat exactly where it was the whole time. It was like such a, such a contrast. Well, it just reminds me of like the last movement of Brahms 1. It's a cello rondo. You got to, it feels off the beat. But it's, and there's so many Brahms does that. Dvorak does that. Schumann does that in that time of just throwing you off. Philip Glass is third symphony. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Not, not very well. No, especially the second and fourth movements throw you. You have to be so concentrated and connected to what you're doing at all times especially the, the the second movement is very repetitive and longer. The fourth movement is just, you have to really know where the threes and the twos are because if, because it could work offset by one eighth note, it, it works just fine. Right. Stravinsky right. does that a lot too, but I feel with Philip Glass, it's so kind of long and repetitive that it makes that kind of concentration bubble harder to maintain. It's so true because even if you offset the rhythms of his music, the harmonic areas will still line up. It's not like having the offset of the C minor chord is going to change the harmony in a way that's going to hurt the piece so much. But like no. in the long run, if everyone's off by a whole beat, it's going to be catastrophic. Have you conducted much of that music? Well, I did it recently, the the, the third symphony. Oh, okay. And even there's parts like where we weren't sure if a note was a D or a D flat and it works both ways. <laughs> you know, so it's like, <laughs> yeah. like it doesn't matter really. and. 
And with Philip Glass, you're really, it's really the effect that you're creating for an audience. It's not how you shape a phrase at all. Right. I feel like the, the fun of that music is figuring out how to shape it. If it's not something that's, and this kind of goes back to the control thing, because, you know, Philip Glass isn't telling you how to phrase. He probably doesn't. I mean, does he put much, many articulations and markings in his scores? Yeah. 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 Very much articulation, very markings in that regard. But like in Mozart, you are phrasing. You have to show it or, in, you know, some conductors mark it in the parts, like where they want the phrase to go, where the gesture. And like, I feel with Mozart for some reason, and he got this a little from Haydn, in a four bar phrase, the weight is always on the second and the fourth beats or, or bars. Like, da dee dum pa da 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 dee I mean, it kind of goes to that second and fourth beat every time. But with Philip Glass, I never found myself really having to talk about or really even show, you know, this in the the third movement, it's just this long buildup and there's some solo violin lines in there. Um, And you, I I think it's more about the dynamics. Like sometimes he has subito mezzo forte and then a forte and then a forte, like, or più forte. So in diminuendos, it's really kind of, controlling those so it's less work but it's more work it's more concentration but it's less interpretive Mm -hmm. power of your brain you're not having to do any interpretation i see quite honestly it's nice to just have mezzo forte forte fortissimo (laughs) it makes your job pretty easy and the music you don't have to talk about quality i mean it's maybe like do we play with this much vibrato or a little less that's agreed on um, you know, maybe if I were to do Satyagraha or Akhenaten, you know, one of his big operas or even Einstein on the beach, I would find, you know, there's a little more interpretation necessary. But just knowing those, how those play, I mean, that that's a cool thing about Philip Glass. You you kind of become one with the creation. Like you're not you're not imparting any of your, which is cool, like because <laughs> so much as a performer, you're having to make all these decisions and. A lot of people like that, but sometimes it's nice to not have to make any decision. (laughs) Right. I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that people connect to that music so much. Like people just love Philip Glass. The music's written in such a way where it's like, yeah, it's it's difficult in certain ways and it takes a lot of stamina, but like the actual material itself is not causing the players the kind of anxiety that you know, Strauss might <laughs> cause, you know. They were, yeah, it was Boulder Symphony and they were remarkably receptive to every moment of that symphony. Like, cause I was thinking, oh, people are going to get, I mean, yeah, I think people kind of, I mean, I felt my hands sweat when we start that second movement, like especially the first performance, the second performance, it was fine. Cause I was like, oh, we can do this. But yeah, I think the, the receptivity was there. And I think the, really unique thing about Philip Glass's music is you look at it as you're studying the score and you kind of say, anybody could write this, but the reality is nobody else could have ever. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) That's that, that's the really cool thing about that. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, no, totally. I mean, you hear so many people try and steal from Philip Glass. There's some composers you can steal from and there's some that you can't. And if you try to do that kind of flavor of minimalism, one people know immediately what you're doing. So that kind of ruins it immediately. And you know you're not going to do it as well yeah. as him because that's, yeah. Well, I am proud to say that we've identified one composer that Jack Frere is not going to steal from today. 
<laughs> I'll find a way. <laughs> well, Jack, it's been awesome speaking with you. And I really wanted to thank you for uh, joining the podcast. And I'm really looking forward to our collaborations and following your music and your trajectory of your career in the future. Yeah. Thanks so much, Devin. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. I'm new on this team, but I've been new before. It's an in-between place, an invisible door that turns outside to inside. Stranger to friend It's the first day of practice I try to pretend That my hands are not shaking I'm not scared at all Thank you for joining us on One Symphony, and thanks to Jack Frere for sharing his music and insights. Thank you to all the incredible performers that made this episode possible. Downloads was played by K.J. McDonald, Philip Shigog, Ning Zhang, Viola Chan, and Joey Chang. On Again, Off Again was performed by the Juilliard Orchestra. Spiral sequences by the Azure Quartet, including K.J. McDonald, Brendan Zach, Hannah Geisinger, and Yi Fai Li. Stutter Step was played by Kevin Ju, Philip Shigog, and Tanku Irfan. The Present Hour was performed by the Albany Symphony's Dogs of Desire Ensemble, featuring vocalist Lucy DeGray and Lucy Fitzgibbon, and text by Ayla Sullivan, Dominic Huey, Emily Bronte, and Amy Ludwig Vanderwater. Brahms' Symphony No. 1 was performed by Pavo Berglund and the Chamber Orchestra of Europe on the Ondine label. You can check out Jack's music online at jackfrayer.com. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. <laughs>